Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. He is the former assistant attorney general for the DOJ's National Security Division, John Carlin. Uh, John currently chairs Morrison and Forrester's Global Risk and Crisis Management Practice Group, and he also co-chairs the National Security Practice Group. He's the author of Dawn of the Code War, which we have linked over on our event homepage for you to take a look at further. But John, I I think I'll pass it along to you and and let you take it from here. Thank you, Kara, and welcome. Imagine this, you're done with the conference today, and since we're all at home these days, you, uh, you switch back to your day jobs, and you hear that there's been a small incident, that someone's intruded into the company's network and taken a relatively small amount of information, some names, addresses, personally identifiable information. And you hear that you know the reason why, that it wasn't a particularly sophisticated hacker, that they got in because of a misconfigured server, you fixed, you fixed the problem. Most of you would think of that, and rightly so, uh, as a low-risk event, if the facts were as they sounded. Now imagine several weeks later, you get a knock on the door, and you hear, hey, boss, update. We got a note, and the note says, and the English is somewhat broken, there are some grammatical errors, but the note says, essentially, I'm mad that you kicked me off the system, so a little bit of chutzpah. I want to be let back on the system. And also, I want five Bitcoin. Otherwise, I'm going to release the names, the addresses, the personal identifiable information that I stole from the company. Now, part of you would be thinking, hey, this is a low-level hacker. Um, they're after a relatively small amount of money, and they don't seem that sophisticated. I'm feeling pretty good that they're off the system because they asked for our help in order to get back on to the system. Now, this is a real case, and I think it demonstrates why your jobs are so hard right now and is a good example of what I'll call the blended threat. Because on the other end of that keyboard was not the low-level criminal that it appeared. I mean, in some sense, it was. It was a hacker named Farisi who had moved from being an extremist in Kosovo to Malaysia, in part to get better access to broadband, believe it or not, and from Malaysia was in a co-conspiracy with a fellow extremist from Kosovo, online working together. They had hacked into a retail company with a trusted brand and stolen these names and addresses. And they really did want to just make a buck. But they also were part of a new phenomenon that's based on our switch to digital technology. And that is Farisi, the young radical in Malaysia who had hacked into this US-based company and stolen consumer information, had managed to become friends online with one of the most notorious terrorists in the world at the time. This was a man named Junaid Hussein. Junaid Hussein was a British citizen in the London area who had been a hacker and then became radicalized when he was in prison. And after getting released, he had joined the Islamic State of the Levant, at the time a terrorist group that was murdering Muslims and non-Muslims alike with impunity, that was using slavery as a political tool, that was using rape to help try to force people to convert to their ideology. 
So they were taking women and children into slavery, they were raping, and they were murdering. That's who Janain Hussein was. At the time, I was the top national security lawyer for the Justice Department, and we'd been going through a transformation. And if you think about it, it started really with September 11th and a massive change in the way government did business. And the fundamental failure of September 11th, the reason why thousands of people had died unnecessarily, was because of a failure to share information within and between governments. And there were many essential reforms that went into place, including the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the Directorate of National Intelligence, when I served as chief of staff to the then relatively anonymous, compared to his current role, uh, director of the FBI, Bob Mueller. The FBI was undergoing a transformation. And the division I led at Justice, the National Security Division, was the first new litigating division in 50 years since the creation of actually the Civil Rights Division. All of these new structures and entities set up to tackle that threat of core Al-Qaeda. And we got good at doing it working with partners, foreign governments throughout the world, when Al-Qaeda tried to centrally plot and plan to create a terrorist attack on the scale of September 11th, we were able to thwart it using intelligence, striking when they tried to get operatives into their geography, the Fatah, the location between Afghanistan and Pakistan. We were able to disrupt those complex and centrally led plots before they could cause devastation on the scale of September 11th. But as we improved as a government, so did they, and they adopted tactics. And what we saw is the Islamic State in Levant, well, first Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and then the Islamic State, created essentially terrorism 2.0, the crowdsourcing of terrorism. And just as Al-Qaeda used aviation, a Western innovation that it caused so much good to turn it into a weapon of mass destruction, we watched as the Islamic State turned another Western innovation, social media, and used it to try to, instead of getting people to travel abroad, to convince people to kill where they lived. And I tell you that story because Junaid Hussein, the radical from the United Kingdom who joins the Islamic, Islamic State, was at the tip of the spear in this new crowdsourcing of terrorism method. Junaid Hussein was particularly effective at reaching English-speaking audiences in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and elsewhere, and convincing them to commit terrorist attacks. My last two years in the Obama administration, we brought more international terrorism cases than we'd ever brought before. And it was linked to two phenomenon. One, the age of the defendants, and over 60%, they were 25 or younger. And number two, and linked to that age of defendant, it was the fact that almost every case involved social media. And think about it, 21 or younger, that has never been the face of international terrorism. And in fact, we had to come up with new guidance to the field about how to handle juveniles in the court system. So we have Junaid Hussein, tip of the spear, convincing people to kill where they live. And he meets Farizi, this low-level criminal hacker who's trying to make a buck in part from Kosovo, who's moved to Malaysia, hacked into a US company, and stolen information. Farizi, located in Malaysia, and Junaid Hussein, who's moved from London to Raqqa, Syria, where he's at the heart of the Islamic State, they never met in the real world. They only met through social media, through Twitter. And Junaid Hussein convinces Farizi to take the information that had been entrusted by customers to this company 
and give it to him. And once he gets it, he doesn't care about making a buck. Consistent with the Islamic State and its philosophy of murder, what he wants to do is create a kill list. And he calls through this information taken from a company like yours to look for specific names and addresses who might be linked to government work, .mil, .gov, if there's other uh, suffixes that show that they're in a police department. And he, and he creates a kill list. And then using social media, using Twitter, he blasts that kill list back to the United States saying, kill these people by name, by address, using the information that they entrusted with this US company. That's the current face of the cyber threat, the blended threat. And when you think about it, it puts you, it puts companies on the front lines of national security events in a way that's never occurred before. And all of those transformations, those billions of dollars, those new departments and agencies that were so focused on sharing information within and between governments are not structured to meet this new threat. Because in order to meet this challenge, I mean, think about it from your perspective as a company. Number one, just as good citizens, you wouldn't want to be responsible for the death of others because you weren't sharing information with the government. And number two, just purely as a business concern for the brand, it'd be game over if it turned out that they had not shared information and that resulted in the death of customers. Now, in this case, they did. They worked effectively with the government. And because of that, that's why I can go into so much detail with you today. We at the Justice Department uh, were able to work with the State Department to get Malaysia to arrest Farizi to disrupt this plot. Farizi was extradited to the United States, actually to Virginia, and is incarcerated, serving time in the first case where both material support to terrorism and computer hacking were charged. Junaid Hussein was outside even the long reach of law enforcement, and he was killed in a publicly acknowledged military strike by Central Command in the Rakasiria area where he lived. And after his death, we saw actually a decrease, along with some others of his cadre, in the success of this terrorism tactic at radicalizing young people inside the United States and convincing them to kill. But that puts you, look at, think about that case, it's information traversing five different borders, it's people of multiple nationalities, and in order to effectively combat it, it requires the full tools of government, diplomacy, military, law enforcement, but also, and critically, could never have occurred without that seam of how do you get information shared from the private sector to government and vice versa, and I would argue even a, a more important and current failure is to make sure that those in government who have access to this information are sharing it with you so you know what the threats are and where the trends are. In this case, the blended threat was a blend of a terrorism group with traditional computer hacking. But we are also seeing blends when it comes to our nation state adversary of different kinds of offenses. I'm gonna uh, tick through uh, a couple examples with you today. The four major uh, nation state adversaries are China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. In your day-to-day, -day, those are the most likely to affect you. I'm gonna talk about them briefly, and I wanna leave time for your questions today. And then also uh, the increase in ransomware and criminal groups, sometimes linked to a nation state, sometimes not, as part of that blend. We'll start with China. So 
When I was at the FBI as chief of staff to Mueller, I came after serving as a computer hacking prosecutor and coordinating the national federal prosecution of computer hacking cases across the country. And when I was first doing this, working with companies like yours, <clears throat> we found that the companies often didn't want to pursue charges because they were worried about retaliation from China and they saw a business upside. That started to shift. And one of the reasons I think it started to shift is not only companies were fully aware of the extent and scale of China's campaign to steal intellectual property and trade secrets by targeting private companies for private financial gain. And one of the reasons they weren't aware is in the government, we had a bit of a Cold War mentality when it came to spying by nation states that made a lot of sense when our primary adversary in the Cold War was Russia. And just like Al-Qaeda had these expensive and carefully controlled plots to try to cause, in their case, devastation, Russia would also be very patient. They'd spend years developing a spy cell inside the United States. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the uh, Americans, the show, but it's based on a case that we brought about a cell inside the United States of Russian operatives who are here just as a normal family waiting to be activated. And in that type of case, it made sense to wait and watch, sometimes for decades, uh, instead of disrupting, because then we could feed false information. And we knew if we disrupted, that they would invest resources in another way to collect intelligence and we might not see it. But with cyber, the scope and scale of the threat surface changed and the targets changed <clears throat> from traditional government targets to you, to the private sector. We saw that particularly with China. A former director of the FBI called their activity like a, a gorilla in your house as a burglar. They were so noisy and so obvious. So as we looked at this, we, we changed strategies and tactics. And that's one of the rare areas of continuity between the Obama and Trump uh, administrations. They, they disagree on a lot, but not on this, which is we needed to move to a model of number one, figuring out who did it. Number two, once we figured out uh, who did it, making it public. And number three, imposing consequences. And the first case of its kind that we brought was indictment of five members of the People's Liberation Army, a specialized unit 61398. And this unit, solely was attacking private sector companies for the financial gain of their rivals. And just to give two quick examples from it, they did things like a US subsidiary of a German solar company, they went in and stole pricing information and they used that pricing information to price dump and force that company into bankruptcy and then to add insult to injury. When that company sued for unfair trade practices, they stole the whole litigation strategy. Or to use another example, Westinghouse was going to do a joint venture right before they were going to lease information to, uh, to their Chinese partner. We saw this specially uniformed cadre from the People's Liberation Army go in and steal the, the design specifications that they otherwise were going to lease, and then they no longer had to make the payment. And this unit, it was their day job. I mean, we put an attachment that showed the activity started around 9 a.m. Beijing time, went from nine to noon. They took a lunch break because it decreased from noon to one, went up again from one to six, around 6 p.m. Beijing time again, decreased over weekends and Chinese holidays. So that means every day, these guys were putting on their uniform, going to work nine to five, targeting you and hacking. And when you think about the resources of the second largest military in the world, there's no way you can compete against that without government help. China remains more focused on intellectual property, trade secret, theft. 
Then we moved to a different threat actor. So as that, well, that was the first case of its kind where we made it public. And then we quickly saw, we'd war gamed for years, as I'm sure you do in your companies, hey, what's the most likely threat? What will we do in response? And we got the threat wrong. I mean, none of us predicted that the first major attack by a nuclear armed adversary overseas was going to be about a major motion picture that they didn't like about a bunch of pot smoking journalists. I could tell you, I was quite surprised. It's the only time in my career I've gone in to brief the president of the United States and start the briefing in the situation room with a plot summary of a movie. And for those of you who've seen the movie, it was not easy to do because that movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the dictator in North Korea was not amused by the comedy and wanted to use cyber means, in this case, a disruptive attack that did three things to Sony, really. And when you think about defending yourself, I would think about all three. So number one, it did a destructive attack that essentially turned computers into bricks. And actually, we'd seen a similar type attack before, also because someone didn't like content from Iran against the Sands Casino after the head of the Sands Casino made some provocative remarks about turning Iran into uh, a nuclear dust cloud. The Ayatollah issued a cyber jihad against uh, Sands, and we saw a destructive attack. But that didn't make major news. And when I go around the country talking about this, I don't see that people heard of that, unlike the Sony attack. So what else happened with Sony? Number two, they stole intellectual property and released it in order to cause harm. That too had happened to Sony before, along with other companies. And I don't think it's the reason why that case resonates so much. The third thing they did that actually in some ways caused the most damage, and ironically, a regime dedicated to opposition to free speech, used the American free media to cause the harm to its adversary. And what they did there is they stole, and all of you know, you know, probably the least defended part of your network is going to be your email exchange servers. They stole email between executives that was salacious. They posted it through these third-party proxy sites, and then they watched as the mainstream media did the damage for them and hurt the brand. Ultimately, they were able to recover, but it required uh, meetings in the, in the Situation Room, National Security Council, where we ultimately treated it as a national security threat. And the president declared that there would be sanctions against North Korea, along with publicly naming North Korea. So I've talked a little bit about actions by Iran, China, North Korea. I'll say both North Korea and Iran currently are very active. Some of you may have seen them in your networks. And in addition to using cyber as a tool of political power, both Iran and North Korea are using it to make money. And so we're seeing them do uh, the same type of activity that a criminal group would do. So ransomware uh, techniques, also just extortion based on the theft of information. And you don't realize necessarily that the bad guy is a state regime when it looks like a criminal group. I'm gonna return to that uh, theme. Let me touch briefly on Russia, because when you hear about what North Korea did, it's a lesson perhaps we should have learned better heading into the 2016 election, which is that the damage that can be done isn't necessarily the damage to infrastructure, that we need to think more creatively about it. It can be an attack on a value. In the case of North Korea, they were attacking free speech. In the case of Russia, they were attacking the right to vote freely in a democracy. And in both cases, they weaponized stolen information 
to use as a damage uh, to, to use it to damage. And I think what you're seeing now uh, is criminal organized criminal groups, such as uh, groups associated around May, the Maze Group, when it comes to ransomware, and others are realizing that taking your information and threatening with you by making public can be just as effective as disrupting your systems at ransomware in extorting a payment, that it can cause the harm, and they've picked up that tactic. Finally, and the last example of a blended threat when it comes to Russia would be the Russian uh, attack on Yahoo. I mean, this was a case where the perpetrator of the attack, Balan, is someone who had been on our most wanted list at the FBI. We sought to get Russian cooperation and went to a specialized unit there where we'd had success before on criminal cases you know, uh, those who exploit children online, uh, terrorists, these are usually groups where there's common interest. And even if the two countries are fighting diplomatically or in other areas, law enforcement could work together. So we went and asked for their help. He was a crook. He did things like change the search engine of Yahoo. So if you tried to do a query, you got redirected to an erectile dysfunction site not a national security issue, not traditional intelligence, right? He did that to make a buck. But what they did when he stole hundreds of millions of email addresses from Yahoo is the Russians, instead of arresting him uh, on a request, that specialized unit signed him up as an intelligence asset. And so he would both make a buck using the stolen email for things like spam, spam schemes, but then he also took taskings from the intelligence service to look through that trove of information to find uh, salient intelligence information like before the invasion of Ukraine to look for FBI uh, agents and others. And so you sitting alone as a company don't know when you're having these intrusions, who's on the other end these days when it comes to the blended threat? Am I dealing with just a traditional criminal actor or is it someone who's combined with the nation state resources? This becomes particularly salient when you're dealing with the threat of ransomware. And one thing I encourage every one of you, if you do not now leave this session, make sure you have a ransomware policy. It is so prevalent right now, particularly with COVID and people working at home. The groups are making so much money doing these extortion schemes, and then they're pouring that money back into developing new tools and additional resources to attack you. And we're just seeing it across the range of small to the largest companies, I think you're seeing it in the news, and the news is just the tip of the spear. There are many more that don't become publicly known where people have paid off the bad guys. Have a policy, and make sure it's the policy is realistic. I know I talk to a lot of boards of directors right now, and they'll say, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't pay ransomware. But the fact is, for almost every company, there is a scenario where it's so existential that you will consider making a payment that, that can occur. And so the next question is, if you do it, who's authorized to make the payment? Do you have a vendor in place who can do the digital currency transaction? Because you don't have a lot of time for this that you're comfortable with. And I can tell you, having worked for companies as outside counsel, you do not want to be negotiating while you're in the middle of one of these ransomware attacks. Ideally, you want to think about it ahead of time. You want to consider whether you want insurance coverage that these days also includes the, uh, the payment. Also to know who your response uh, vendor would be who can help get your systems up back and running. And then you have to consider how to do it legally. And I started with the theme of this, this gap, trying to get better communication across the private to the public sector. This is particularly important with ransomware. 
There's a very active group right now, Evil Corp. Evil Corp is a designated entity by the Treasury Department, just like Iran and North Korea maybe, and certain other uh, Russian actors. That means it is unlawful for you to make a payment, even a ransomware payment, to the group. And so if you are considering making a payment, you want to show you've done what you can to determine that that group is okay to make a payment. There's two regimes. One, if you intentionally make a payment to a terrorist group, that could be a criminal offense, material support to terrorism. The other regime is even trickier because the first one requires intent. But the next is the OFAC regime under Treasury. And for their regime, it's strict liability, meaning it doesn't matter whether you had intent or not, you are not allowed to make payments to designated entities. And Treasury Department has, has said that they want to become more active in this area. So what can you do to protect yourself? One, you can use those vendors to do checks to show you you tried due diligence, even though you didn't know who it was on the other end of the keyboard, because they don't have a huge, you know, if you think about KYC in the banking uh, sector, the idea of knowing your customer, well, here you know your customer is a criminal trying to extort you. So they're expecting you to exercise due care before making a payment. And then uh, really think about notifying the FBI. And if you're a major brand or other law enforcement, I encourage you to do it before making an actual payment. Because then if they don't tell you that it's designated, that's a powerful argument to say you did everything that you could in order to try to comply with the law and not make a payment to a designated group. That's just one example um, of how in a world of blended threat, you as, as a CISO can think of ways to mitigate risk and protect your company. I wanna leave time because this is such an informed group for questions, so I think I'll stop there and just thank you for having me here today. This is a threat to our nation. You are on the front lines of that threat without you thinking about uh, and taking the actions that you'll take from sessions like this, our nation is not safe. So thank you and I welcome your questions. And as we wait for some questions, um, I'll, uh, I'll start walking through some questions that, that I get regularly, some lessons learned from some of these attacks, things that CISOs wish they had done differently after you've suffered an attack. And when you think about the different threat factors. One is how they originally get access to your system. As you all know, with complex systems, I mean, there's no way you can make it perfectly safe, but I recommend trying to really think through not just um, having an endpoint detection tool, but making sure you know how it's configured. And what I'm seeing quite often right now will be your, your, your EDR tool is picking it up, but your, the SOC or those who are, or if it's not a formal SOC, those who are tasked with executing on the threat are not in part because the tool is, is so noisy, it's weeding out the attacker activity. Or the attacker will uh, have made multiple attempts that you're catching, but because each one is being caught individually and no one's stepping back and looking to see the threat, you don't realize that a particular actor is trying to gain access to your system. So that's one area to take a look at. Number two, once they gain a foothold and start moving laterally in the system to make sure pre-attack that you've looked through, okay, do I, do I have too many admin accounts? Which often we're finding people do. Yes, it makes it easier on the IT front, 
but it's something that can massively increase the damage of one of these attacks. And usually what we're seeing with these, with these ransomware type actors is they're, they're patient, they're looking through your system to get that admin level account, and then once they have it, that's what they use to deploy the malware that encrypts your system or that they use to exfiltrate data pre-encryption because again, they, they tend to blend the threat now to get that double extortion uh, value. So keep trying to neck down those accounts. This uh, next one is simple, but in almost every of these cases, you find it wasn't deployed somewhere, which is multi-factor authentication. They're gonna keep moving to the weaker target. If it's a very sophisticated nation state and they have a desire to target you, yes, there's ways they can get around multi-factor authentication. But the fact is with a lot of these criminal groups, they'll just move on if they're unable ultimately to access those admin accounts. And then resilience. You know, think through your asset. This is the simple blocking and tackling, but your asset inventory. Um, so you know where your assets are. Let's say you had to start decrypting them. Do you know where the key assets are so that you could move quickly? Can you automatically deploy if you have a decryption tool, the decryptor, to get your systems back up and running? And do you have backups? How often do you back up? And then because we're increasingly seeing the bad guy again go in and try to get admin level access, they look to disable the backups because they know you do that or to deploy their malware. So have you kept them sufficiently segregated from your system and access controlled to make life more difficult for that bad guy? Thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes exclusively on Digital Diary.